to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that before the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts was called Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts, it was referred to by the local media as Macca's Fame School. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that he remembers, that no one else ever seems to, is Beatle academic Chris Shaw. Chris, what are you up to and where can we find it? Hi Tim, yes I host I Am The Egg Pod, which is a Beatles podcast interviewing people about their favourite Beatle and solo Beatle albums. Okay, well I hope that eventually you're going to get round to covering the Beatles cartoons, but your first choice, while being sort of roughly contemporaneous to them, is about as far removed from the Beatles cartoons as you can really possibly get. Let's just have a listen to the theme music. Chasing around the world's what they're doing, racing to find the next clue. Will it be Bailey's Comets winning? Will it be Bailey's or who? Well, out of the back come the Texas Black Cats, followed by the Jekyll Hides. Then the railroad river says the clusters roll and coasters stone rollers, cosmic rays like Ezra Giants, they all try to get up ahead of Bailey's Comets, whether by hook or by crook. Okay, well that's a theme song where if you listen to any podcast with Richard Herring, you will have heard a lot of not very well sung renditions of that. Chris, what was Bailey's Comets? Bailey's Comets was a very... I think it was on during Swap Shop, but I think it had its own slot as well. It was effectively a copy of Wacky Races, whereby a team of skaters were chasing around America, or no, chasing around the world, in fact, looking for a clue which would lead them to a million-dollar prize. It was very, very, I'm guessing, a cheap copy of Wacky Races, but it was full-on in-your-face. Yeah, it was basically, as far as I remember, kind of like a very low-rent version of It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. That's what the storyline was, basically. <laughs> it was roller skaters, wasn't it? Going around the world in search of a fortune, which I'm not sure if they ever actually found it, did they? No, well, again, I think it was cancelled before we actually found out, did they win it? There was no information. It was thrown on at you. It reminded me a bit of Big John, Little John, where the opening title sequence told you the whole premise. You know, this guy discovering the fountain of youth, whatever. And that was it. (laughs) And then there was no first episode where it showed you it happening. It was basically straight in. You know, chasing around, that's what they're doing, racing to find the next clue for this million-dollar prize. Who organised this? (laughs) What was it about? But you took it, you accepted it, and it was like, okay, fine, that's what they're doing. The, the, the two commentators in the helicopter, yeah, it was very like it's a man, man, man world. But uh, these two commentators who, who had no, <laughs> they always had a smile on their face, and uh, one of them sounded very much like um, Fred from Scooby-Doo. Yeah, it was. That, was. that was Frank Welker. And the other one was Dawes Butler, who was also Bingo with the Banana Splits, which is basically a sort of commentator voice anyway. So he was ideally suited to the role. They always had a smile on their face. So whatever calamities were going on, they were narrating it. And in the lead, it's Bailey's Comets and following the mystery map. All of the other teams would effectively try and kill Bailey's Comets. <laughs> While these two commentators were still smiling away. And there was one, I think it was possibly the Yo-Ho-Hos who were some pirates, but they were going around a cliff and they threw a load of butter down this cliff 
And Bailey's comments were effectively sliding to their death over this cliff. And these commentators are still going, and it looks like trouble for Bailey's comments. Well, Bailey's comments themselves, the actual team, they were sort of clean-cut teenagers, weren't they? Yeah, very much so. You had uh, Barnaby, who was the... Again, he looked like Fred from Scooby-Doo, and he was always encouraged by his girlfriend. There was a guy with glasses whose name I can't remember. He was he was the one I sort of hooked to because he was he seemed a bit more sensible. He was always inventing things. But there was Pudge, who was this guy at the back, little fat guy who loved bananas. It was all one-dimensional. There's no character plots or whatever. He loved bananas. That was his thing. And invariably, he would be the one, if there was a, a spell cast by the Broomer Girls, who were a, a team of witches, he would be the one that suffered. There was an episode where he suddenly had this infatuation with her. He wanted to discover gold for no reason. And so he scurries off and joins these two gold diggers. The first thing they do is say, oh, well, we'll snap Pudge out of this. Throw him some bananas. (laughs) No, I don't want bananas. I want gold. It's typical 70s stuff where you hear yourself talking about it and you think, what the hell was this? Well, it's one of those ones where I think people do remember it, but they get confused with wacky races and maybe some of the similar sort of costumes that were on around the same time. Because I think they remember the teams, but not what they came from. Because, as you say, they were the Broomer Girls, who were witches, and weren't there some bears? The Roller Bears. The Roller Bears. And am I right about this? There was the Jekyll Hyde, who were sort of English gents in top hats. Yeah. And they used to sort of spin round and go into their top hats and turn from... Yeah. Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde figures. They did. There's one episode where, there, again, it was Pudge, as always, who was, had some spell on him. And the guy, Barnaby, who looks like Fred from Scooby-Doo. Oh, the Jekyll Hydes are right in front of us. Why don't we get them to help? And they were in their um, their good mode, the, the English gent mode. And this section went on for about five minutes where, yes, of course we'll help you. Here's the antidote. And then they suddenly change into the hides and then chase them and steal the antidote. And then they turn back, oh, we'll give the antidote back. Five minutes this thing goes on. Well, I was quite surprised to find out. I mean, I expected it to be one of the two because it had that kind of weird air of one of Hanna-Barbera's competitors. You know, where it's a bit psychedelic, it doesn't quite work, it doesn't quite time the gags right. So I thought it's either going to have been Ruby Spears or DePatey Freeling. And it turns out it was actually both of them working together I'm presumably trying to topple Hanna-Barbera mm. during one of their weaker moments because I think they were still making good cartoons around this time because I think this was around 73 to 75. But they were well on the road to, hey, it's the king. And obviously Ruby Spears and DePatey Freeling kind of seen their moments and thought we could get the inside track here with Bailey's Comets. And it didn't quite happen that way. My, just my memory of it was the excitement. It was just straight in there. This that was all the way through effectively. And you couldn't help getting excited about this, this pointless... I have to say, who organised this? Was it a government thing or was it... <laughs> what was it? Well, I think part of the excitement was that, as you say, it was shown as part of Swap Shop. And I think people forget mm. now that there were inserts in Swap Shop. I mean, mainly because a lot of them were 
weirdly unmemorable. Even though you watch them every week. I mean, obviously there was Hong Kong Fui, but yes, there was also there was things was like there was the oddball couple, which was wasn't it a dog and a cat doing sort of silent comedy antics? I remember in the opening yeah. titles there was either the dog or the cat cranked up the front of a vintage car and whichever the other one was went up on the seat, you know, a hilarious visual gag. There was nobody ever remembers this apart from me. There was Skip and Fuffy, which was done by <laughs> Gordon Murray, who did Trump and Camwick Green, Chigley, etc. Whereas two puppets who traded kind of gags with each other while Freddie Phillips basically went where 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 on his acoustic guitar oh, and the yeah. only evidence I've ever found of that was in a swap shop book because they didn't do annuals they did books but in one of them it's got a skip and fluffy joke page where it's got photos of them telling jokes but the inserts in swap shop I mean no matter how much you like swap shop they were something you really look forward to and I think Bailey's Comets people look forward to possibly more than most. It was brilliant. It was brilliant. It should have been... I have no idea why it's... Well, maybe it is on some of these obscure um, satellite channels, but I've, I've never seen it since. Okay, well, moving on to your second choice now, which I don't imagine is something that you ever particularly quite look forward to seeing. Okay, well, that was a clip from the 1968 film Evolubon, taking a tour of the Philips Science Museum in Eindhoven in the Netherlands. Chris, why have you picked this? I would say most of my childhood was plonked in front of either the radiogram or the television, just waiting for something to happen. Obviously, the era of power cuts and, you know, TV would close down at particular hours of the day and then suddenly open. So the excitement would be looking in the newspaper and saying, oh, there's a programme on at four o'clock, you know, TV's back on. And every now and again, at half three, something mysterious would happen, and it would be these trade test transmissions. Yeah, basically, they were sort of short films, weren't they? Which then kind of served a dual purpose. They were like a sort of moving equivalent of the test card, which I think did actually bookend them sometimes. And there were films that were sort of commissioned from businesses, weren't they? Like Phillips, like I think Shell, who did the the homemade car about the guy who built his own car to impress the girl next door. And I think it might have been BP who did Giuseppina, the one about the Italian girl who lived at a petrol station. And quite often they used up-and-coming directors, up-and-coming actors, and they were really just sort of quirky short films with quirky themes and quirky music sometimes as well. I mean, the homemade car has that amazing Ron Gray, the harpsichord thing going throughout it. But this, this was really weird, and it had some very strange music that, well, it sounded about eight years out of date when the film was doing the rounds, but really, it probably sounded about eight years out of date when it was actually made. And it had that kind of clinical library music sort of sound to it as well, which when you're a kid can seem Mm. quite, it was like the test card music, really, except the only real difference was in between the kind of jazzy bits, it occasionally (laughs) went, eh, 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 eh. For no apparent reason. It was, oh, it used to terrify me. The whole experience terrified me. My memory at the time was the beginning. First, we had the excitement of, hang on, there's a, the next program isn't due on till four o'clock. It's half three and something is happening. And the very opening scene of this building that looks very much like a, a sort of 1950s spaceship 
but also it looks very much like the beginning of Thunderbirds. So I would be so excited. Oh, cool, Thunderbirds is on. And then my disappointment <laughs> would just <laughs> evaporate. The music itself was probably the most scary thing. You, The one scene I do remember is where they're going up in this lift. And it, obviously it's a science museum, so people are going... The premise of the whole thing, they're going around this science museum, but there's no narration. There's no voicing. Hello and welcome to the uh, trade test uh, transmission. This is evolving in either. Nothing. You were just exposed to this surreal... And it was like this Heath Robinson impre- inventions of, you know, people being clocked in as they as they went through the reception desk. But there was this bit with a lift, this see-through lift, and you had this choir going, oh, it's terrifying. And as a five-year-old kid, when you're expecting bagpuss... <laughs> Puts the shits up here. Well, yeah, because it's kind of like something that's not really existed for a long time. We just sort of like the the off cuts of television, <laughs> the rough edges of it. You know, the things that like this that I assume engineers use to tune up equipment, and probably people who own TV shops did as well. You know, to make sure the actual programs went out so that people didn't complain later and say, why was Jimmy Hill's face green? (laughs) And there were things like the Open University, the test card itself. Public information films were, you know, quite often I see the start of one thing. Ooh, ooh, it's an extra cartoon. And then, no, it's that door chain song again. And this was exactly like that. This was sort of just plonked there so that the, well, the backroom Mm. boys, as they always called them on sports programs, could check everything was working ahead of, well... uh, I guess it would have been the regional news roundup and play school, probably. Yeah. And like you say, there was no introduction. I think even in the Radio Times and newspapers, it didn't even say which ones were going to be on. Yeah. It just sort of said trade test transmissions in that sort of weird bit where the font went a bit smaller than the rest of it. <laughs> I mean, it's a cliche now, everybody's saying, you know, programmes in the 70s, especially kids' programmes were. But this, if you're looking for one programme... Because it was shown, you know, kids would have been able to see this in amidst backpuss or whatever, whatever was on. And there was no, you know, as I say, I was plonked in front of the telly. And I'd be sitting there, but looking back now, I'd love to just watch myself as this five-year-old kid exposed to this. There's a couple snogging, and then it cuts to footage of a rocket being launched. <laughs> and it's, what? <laughs> what is going on? But some of it's amazing, you know, is it like 3D line drawings, like dolls' houses and miniature fairground. I still maintain, if you put Revolution 9 to this video, it would be the, the archetypal video to go with that song. I think I understand Revolution 9 more, to be honest, and that's <laughs> not something I'd say every day. But we're moving on to your next choice now, which, well, it wouldn't have shown you how to play Revolution 9. It wouldn't even have shown you how to go, eh, 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 but... Let's just hear the experts in action. Hello and welcome to an all-new rock school, the programme that examines how you make music in a rock band. And in this series, we're going to be looking at synthesizers and keyboards and how new technology has changed the face and the sound of modern music. OK, that was a clip from BBC Two's Rock School, which I'd say, when it's remembered, isn't really remembered particularly fondly. So what's your take on it? My memory is extremely fond because I would inevitably skive off double games to watch this. And it was just, for me, the coolest thing. I've seen clips now which 
looking back, you can yeah, you can change your mind. At the time, as a kid, these were the three coolest people I'd ever seen in my life. It was Deirdre, Deirdre Cartwright. Obviously, I've looked this up since. I knew them as Deirdre, Jeff and Henry. But um, there was Deirdre Cartwright, who was guitar. Jeff Nichols, who was on drums. Henry Thomas on bass. And they would effectively teach you in a really basic way how to play in a band, in a, whether it be a blues band, heavy metal, reggae, funk, disco, anything. And oh, I used to love, it was the coolest thing I remember, probably because I should have been at school, <laughs> may have tainted it slightly for me. Well, did you know that it was actually a co-production with Lorimar, the American production company? So the same people who made Dallas yes. and the Waltons and Second Division Video Nasty Dead and Buried. But we're sure they were there with Herbie Hancock linking it. But even better still, it was produced by the Educational Broadcasting Corporation, which I always really loved because the initials are EPC, the same as EMU's broadcasting company. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember that you, you could clearly see the bits that were made in the UK and the bits that were made in the US because the, the UK ones are very... Hello, and today we're going to teach you how to play uh, some funk. And then it would cut to, like, Nile Rogers or whatever, and it was clearly filmed somewhere else, and he was being really cool. Yeah, of a vague recollection, there was one explaining how MIDI worked, which featured Jan Hammer, and I'm fairly sure he wouldn't have just been passing the BBC's Riverside Studios. <laughs> yeah, it was all very much, look at this new technology. Isn't it amazing? Whereas in the UK yeah. version, it'd be somebody like Mick Parfit saying, if you play on the downstroke, <laughs> it is louder. Which, to be fair, is right. But did, I think they, I'm sure they had like John Entwistle, I seem to remember vaguely. Yeah, John Entwistle was on, but the name that really left out with me was the Communards. Because it ran from 1983 to 1987, which I was quite surprised by, really, because I thought it was really just a year or so. Because you seem to get everyone from Vince Clark to Carl Palmer. Was this the UK one? Well, given that the next one I was going to name was Motorhead, yeah. But uh, I think they were all sort of mishmashed together, and the Americans probably just put their own linking bits on. Ah, oh, OK. Again, my, my memory of it, and which has been confirmed having watched a few for this is the Deirdre, Jeff and Henry they are brilliant musicians they are fantastic but their presenting skills are really you know, read the autocue and that's kind of it and oh, bless them, I'm, I'm sure I read somewhere Deirdre's still, I think she's quite famous now in uh, teaching, I think all of them have sort of moved on into you know top level musician jobs but they were great and they were, again it's, it's all juxtaposition it was my, I should have been at games running around when it's pouring down with rain playing rugby but no, I was watching Deirdre Cunt, an amazing guitar solo to Motorhead songs. Well, I think it's true that we did value programmes like this a bit more because there, at that point, there was almost a finite amount of music television on. I mean, I'm not going to turn it into some ridiculous sob story because, you know, I'm sure in the 50s all they had was Oh Boy once a week and... That was probably it. But even so, I mean, if you wanted to see pop music, there was Top of the Pops, there was the occasional programme like this. But otherwise, you had to get up on the Saturday morning, watch the Saturday morning shows in a faint hope there might be a band on or the occasional children's BBC or children's ITV show. And really, there wasn't very much beyond that. For me, it was, I mean, I was in a band for years um, and this was definitely a massive influence on me because the one thing I do remember was thinking, so I would have been, I don't know, 13, 14 maybe. And these guys, they didn't look that much older than me. And they're on TV playing in a band. And that, for me, was as much an influence as reading the Ray Coleman, John Lennon book 
which effectively said the same thing. You know, John Lennon more or less gave up on school at about 15. Two very bad influences on me. But uh, yeah, it kind of turned out right in the end, I suppose. No, it's a brilliant programme. And uh, so you were saying it's it's been not that praised? I'm... Well, it's always been the one where whenever there have been sort of retrospective features on rock on TV and say Q or Mojo or whatever, it's always the punchline to the joke rock school. I think because it was quite earnest and muso and Bell and Sebastian did a song called The Ghost of Rock School, which isn't the most complimentary <laughs> song ever written. I think it was really because it just showed the nuts and bolts of performance without that much actual music, really. And either you were interested in that or you weren't. And if you weren't, you just sat there thinking, why are they talking about effects pedals so much? But it's no different to the videos you get now if you've got, a, a, I don't know, a piece of equipment that you're not sure has worked, go on YouTube and someone there will explain it to you. Say, oh no, you want to plug that into that. That's the kind of, the level it was. And it was just, yeah, as you say, if you were into that kind of thing, it was information that was unavailable anywhere. But it was, the family wouldn't sit around on a Sunday evening and watch it, I guess. Well, I'm not even sure it was conceived as a music show first and foremost, because it was a very BBC Two thing around that time, in that time slot, to have shows that were just instructional shows that showed you what to do about, you know, things like woodwork and so on. And I'm assuming it was probably just part of all that. I have nothing but good memories of it, and I wish Deirdre and Jeff and Henry, and there was another guy as well on the keyboards who I can't remember, but yeah, I hope they're doing well. Okay, well, I really don't have any good ideas about how to get from rock school to your next choice, so let's just have the trailer for it. Follow Butch Patrick on a fantastic trip through the Phantom Tollbooth, where nothing is real but your imagination. To Dictionopolis, where words are weird. Words in a word are fantastic. You can hint them, you can say them, you can print them, you can pray them, emphasize them, and despise them. Digitopolis, where figures are freaky. Numbers can be added to, subtracted from, divided into, multiplied by, crossed out, and erased. Climb the mountains of ignorance, where dreams become nightmares. We have nothing to worry about. And the monsters are magnificent. It's the gelatinous giant. Pass through the phantom toll booth and into the magic world of your mind. Rated G. Well, you're probably thinking, that sounds a bit live action, but it also sounds a bit animated. And you'd be right on both counts, really. So, Chris, tell us about the phantom toll booth. Before the internet, there's a lot of things where you'd have a conversation saying, do you remember this? And nobody I knew had ever heard of this. And as far as I'm aware, it was only broadcast once or twice in the 70s. Once in 75, once in 78. So it would have been the 78 version I watched. It's a full-length cartoon feature by Chuck Jones. But it's partly, well, mainly animated. But you've got a section at the end. Is it Butch? Who's the guy from the Munsters? Butch Patrick, yeah. I mean, it's a very famous book in America, the uh, Norton Juster book, isn't it? But not so famous over here, am I right? I don't know. No, not really. But I knew of it because they did it on Jack and Nori in the very early 80s. Ah. I'm going to ask you if you can guess what pop song they used as the theme music for that. For this? What, in Jack and Nori? Oh, don't know. Go on. The Magical Mystery Tour. Of course. Yeah, with very bad and very basic animation of a boy sort of lifting off <laughs> up out of the fairground ride. The film itself is just wonderful. It's There's a lot to criticise about it. It is very psychedelic. It, it does meander and it does ponder 
pointlessly on several occasions. But the the section for me was the boy Milo, where this box arrives in his room. Come on, Milo, walk through this toll booth. The bit that everyone will remember is the bit where he's, he goes through, he's got this little toy car, and then suddenly he's a cartoon. And then it was going on here. Then he goes back again, reverses, he's human again. And it, it just went back and back for about five minutes. That is the bit I mainly remember. I remember it coming on telly, and it was, I think it was around sort of September-ish. It was the kind of the end of the summer holidays. I, I can't remember if I was at school or not. But it was at that point where you'd had an awesome summer holiday, and it was just starting to rain, and there was nothing to do. Everything was boring, you know. In the summer holidays, as a kid, it was just relentless. And this came on, and it completely summed up that, oh, yeah, this is the summer holiday. Bored little kid at the front. And this theme tune, again, it's one of those theme tunes that explains the whole story. You know, Milo's bored, that's it. <laughs> they should have just called it that. Incredibly bored kid, box arrives, turns into a cartoon, and I was like, wow, this is awesome. And they never showed it again. I, as far as I know, I don't think it's ever been on telly since. Well, I have to admit that I didn't see it, but it's really reminding me in a roundabout way of something where Butch Patrick around this time was also in a series called Lidsville, which is more or less exactly the same thing, even down to having a theme song that took up most of the programme, which is kind of turning into a bit of a theme of this edition, really, (laughs) where it was something like he messed around with the magician's hat and got sucked into the magician's hat and came out the other side in a land full of basically living (laughs) hats. It was made by the same people who made the banana splits in Marty Cross. And it's got that same sort of weird, psychedelic, somewhere between Strawberry Alarm Clock and a carnival vibe, really. Yeah, there's some scenes in this. This I would put this up with, obviously I'm being a, uh, a huge Beatles fan, I would put this up with Yellow Submarine. There's one particular scene with, I think his name is Cromer, who was an orchestra conductor. There's just this scene where he gets up again sorry i'm the the premise is they're driving around very much like wizard of oz or whatever they're driving around finding all these new different people that they meet there's dictionopolis and digitopolis that's effectively the plot these two lands that are fighting and ultimately milo will bring peace but (laughs) this scene where this guy is conducting an orchestra to bring daylight and sunrise and Milo thinks, oh, yeah, I'll have a go at that. And there's complete chaos. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of animation and music I've ever seen. It's up there with Disney. It's only three, four minutes long. And that was the bit that stuck with me uh, for years. Well, you did always used to get, I mean, I associate it more with towards the end of the Christmas holidays and the summer holidays, but you get those couple of days where they'd obviously, they've run out of all the imported things they're showing every day. They've run out of anything else they could show. And they, Lord knows where they drag these films up from, but there were these really weird kids' films from the late 60s, early 70s. And the one that always really stuck with me was that really weird version of the Pied Piper with Donovan in it, which is actually quite frightening. And yes, sometimes the films would be really creepy like that. I mean, other times they'd be really kind of far out and experimental. Uh, Most of the time, let's be honest about it, they were just boring. But this definitely fits into both those first two categories. And I'm surprised it didn't really get shown more often. The plot was effectively pretty limited. I mean, I'm sure the book... 
again, it's it's very famous within schools. You, you search for it. The kids in America do whole stage plays about it, and it's very well respected. Well, apparently, Norton Juster, who wrote the book, hated this film. He's actually quoted as saying it made him angry. <laughs> Why? I'm not really sure, because the actual quote is, it was a film I never liked. I don't think they did a good job on it. It's been around for a long time. It was well-reviewed, which also made me angry. <laughs> Isn't that just the lyrics to A Child's Guide to Good and Evil by the West Coast Pop Arts <laughs> Experimental Band? None of it fits together in any way. Did he show bug powder <laughs> dust at the end? Well, he yeah, sort your life out, Norton. It was great. You know, I've seen it once in my childhood, and it is so vivid. And it was it was around on YouTube for a while, and obviously it gets taken down. I think the reason it wasn't so big in the UK was there's a lot of a sort of American references. The, the premise is that um, Milo is bored of school, he's not interested in learning, and throughout his adventures he picks up information and learns maths and English and whatever. But it's all American history. So they're blurting out this stuff at the end. So if you're watching in the UK, the arc is that Milo's reciting all these American history facts, which mean nothing. So as a kid, you're thinking, what? What? I have no idea what he's talking about, but he seems happy. And uh, spoiler alert, yeah. At the end of it, he's running around with all the other kids, full of excitement, and um, he's on the phone to his friend. Oh, this toll booth's arrived at my house, and wonderful it's a wonderful wonderful piece of animation music and it's definitely got that beautiful sort of dark psychedelia that i like well it sounds like it was your equivalent of the film that was like that for me was it was actually done saturday morning on itv and i think this may actually have even been on my birthday when i was really young but they showed the film version of H.R. Puff and Stuff, oh, the Sid and Marty yeah. Croft series, which is just called Puff and Stuff as a film, which blew my <laughs> mind. It was incredibly psychedelic. Yeah. It was like nothing I'd ever seen before. And Mama Cass turns up in the middle yeah. of it singing this amazing song called Different, while cartoony witches yeah. are doing a big choreographed dance oh, number fantastic. behind her. And I remember everyone talking about it in school on the Monday. And then fast forward a couple of years, nobody seemed to remember it. Nobody seemed to have heard of it. You know, I'd mention it to sort of older people and say, oh, I remember the series, but not that there was a film. And it took me years and years to track it down. But when I finally did, I loved it just as much as I did when I was a kid. So that was a real relief for me, really. There was a definite freedom, wasn't there, around that time? I don't know if it's the, the whole 60s vibe, man, but people were allowed to create anything, and it seemingly. I would say the difference with this one, it's, it's more a kind of made-by-adults that children should watch rather than children would choose to watch it. It's, it's very kind of, right, batten down the hatches, kids. Go to school, learn. And ultimately, yeah, not when you're six, seven years old, <laughs> you just want to play. And just as a side note, the music was written by Norman Gimbel, who did also co-write the music for the Puff and Stuff film. And also later, I think, the theme song for the New Adventures of Wonder Woman. So there's definitely a kind really? of through line there. But weirdly, there doesn't appear to be the soundtrack album, which is a bit of a shame, because I think I would have probably quite liked to have got hold of it. Well, I've no idea whether, in your quest to prove that the Phantom Toll Booth existed, you ever phoned up a radio phone-in to see if anyone else <laughs> remembered it. I mean, I tried that a couple of times, and believe me, and of all people, 
Danny Baker once accused me of making something up, but that's by the by. Well, if you did phone one, though, I actually hope you phoned into this guy. Uh, Chris in Stratford. Chris, hello. Hello, good evening, Robert. Yes. Um, I had an idea about the queuing. Well, I've been thinking about it for two days. You've been thinking about it for two days? Yeah, you know, you get people well, you've been in a long queue. queue at bus stops. Yes. Um... Well, I had an idea, but I didn't know where to say it because, um... You weren't sure? You know, I think, I thought that people think that I might be a bit stupid coming out with it. Well, but this is a way of getting rid of bus queues. Yeah. Yep. Um, right, the idea is, um... Cancel you know, the buses. Yeah. You know, when you queue up and that, at bus stops... Yep. Um, I was thinking, you know, like phone cards that you put in, uh, the phone card machine? Yes. You could go, like, to the shops, mm-hmm. buy a card, mm-hmm. pay about £2 a week for it, go to the bus stop, put it in the machine, and ticket come out. Then you can't jump the queue. Yes. OK, that was a clip of Robbie Vincent in full radio-resenting flow, but Chris... Why are we tuned into him? The voices of my childhood were obviously Oliver Postgate, Ray Brooks, Bernard Crivins, Brian Kant, and Robbie Vincent, who was this voice. It was these phone-ins which weren't really around at the time. It was, you know, the general public on the phone to people on the radio. The radio was this magical thing that played music and the occasional voice, and they were famous. And somehow Robbie Vincent was transcending that by talking to ordinary members of the public like us. But he was just this absolute gent, really kind, lovely voice, really intelligent. Looking back, he's now more famous for his soul and funk. You know, he's a big champion of really good music. But I remember him on Radio London, just this lovely, lovely guy. It was before the, you know, the shock jock way before that I think he was one of the first phone-ins which is now a multinational industry he was just brilliant and he was on bizarrely the other night on the Ian Lee show on talk radio and his voice hasn't changed a bit he must be 103 years old and he's still sharp as a button well apparently the whole phone-in thing started because of the three-day week mm in the sense that I'm not quite sure of the technical details, but there's something in terms of they were limited in terms of power-wise, how much music they could put out. And him and his producer thought, well, you know, obviously you can still put out speech, so if you've got somebody on the other end of the phone, that doesn't really... You know, we can put out a lot oh, more of that. So cheap radio, I guess. Well, more needs must radio, really, because I think, you know, mm. if the power had gone down and you had somebody just talking to themselves until the power came back up, I think it would have ended up a bit like Blue Jam, only probably even more worrying. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently he interviewed Thatcher very early on as well. That's right, yes. It's it's weird. It's You know, it's those voices from your childhood that you can't actually explain what it is. Oliver Postgate, I would say, is the voice for me of the of my childhood. And I can't pinpoint why. I think it's that kind of weird, echoey, it's recorded in a shed, woody sound and and it's slightly distant and it's slightly ethereal, but it's kindly. And for me, yeah, Robbie Vincent and he had a slightly cockney accent, which you never heard on the radio at the time. You know, for me at the time you were listening to what a sensational sound. Everybody spoke like that, and it was all... And then Robbie Vincent was just like this 
ordinary, really intelligent. That was the thing that got me. He was sharp as a button. For me, he was much better than, you know, Tony Blackburn and all these so-called Noel Edmonds and he who shall not be named type DJs. It was a completely different kind of experience. Somebody from the media, be it television or radio, communicating directly with so-called ordinary members of the public. It was a revelation for me. And there was one particular phone call where he corpsed and he just laughed his head off on this uh, particular phone call, which I think was about bus tickets and how to uh, reduce bus queues. And this guy phoned up. And looking back now, I played it the other day, and it's kind of ahead of its time, his suggestion, where he's talking about computers and it's a very protracted way of alleviating uh, bus queues where you each get given a ticket so if the person who's number nine in the queue jumps in front of the person in number two in the queue the bus driver must then contact this um, network where they must uh, go around the person's house it was surreal it just went on and on Robbie Vincent was <laughs> so patient a lot you know in the years of shock jocks and whatever and everybody being horrible he was so kind he just let him do it. he let him talk through this whole thing and occasionally he said well what if person number three in the queue went home <laughs> what would person number four do would he you know and he was so patient so kindly and it was only when the conversation ended he just lost it completely just couldn't hold it together well he also does seem to move with the times quite effectively because one thing i've noticed that i found out about him was that he did really get behind the whole early to mid 80s jazz funk scene i mean maybe the you know the music if the reaction to the bbc4 top of the pops repeats anything to go by you know it hasn't stood the test of time in popularity terms but he that was a new thing and he really did get behind that Gave a lot of early support to people like Curiosity Killed the Cat and Swing Out Sister. But as well as that, when he was doing that show, he had a jingle recorded by Aid Edmondson, sort of redoing wow. the bore, 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 bore bit from the young ones as Jazz, 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 Jazz. I've looked for that and I can't find it. So sadly, you've got to have me oh. doing that instead. But it sounds like, all in all, he really did have his ear to the ground. Wasn't he a host of some TV show at some, was it a? hospital or something or no it's a keep fit show. go for it surely go for it yes go yeah. for it put a little bit in to get a little bit out that was such a finger waggy <laughs> program and what i hated about it the most was it ended with a kind of crime watch photo fit so walter raleigh saying he was wanted for introducing the potato to britain and making us all unhealthy and it was so smug <laughs> and so pleased with itself and they used it at the end of every single show and it, even within a week, viewers were sick of that. Wasn't it families competing to see who could be the most pious about how healthy their lifestyle was? Yeah. Calling it go for it, you know, it's going to be pious. Go for moment. it, exclamation mark, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's done better than that. Okay, well, we're sticking with phones for your final choice, although I don't know what this is. I've got no idea what I'm going to use as a clip here, so see you on the other side, everyone. There was a, um, a company based in Kensington, who had a system that they'd licensed from California, whereas uh, at the time, telephones were still based on rotary dials. Now, this system would uh, read the clicks on rotary dial and turn it into a number. So if you dialed a nine, the system would know from the clicks that you dialed a nine. And they'd come to us uh, as the fighting fantasy people, saying, do you think there's any you know, game you could have 
and I looked at what they got and I thought, wow, this is like somebody's invented a pack of cards and they've said, oh, we'll be using it for telling fortunes. Do you think you can think of any games that you can play with this pack of cards? It was like wide open. Okay, whatever turns out to have been used there, Chris, please enlighten us. This was an 0898 number and it was called Fist. What? So before you, <laughs> before you question me, this was, I think, back in the 80s, and it was a telephone line, and it was this kind of Tolkien-esque role-playing game where you had to defeat goblins and, you know, fight battles. But what it would be, you it's very much like the books of the time. Was it Steve Jackson used to do these sort oh, of books? Oh, the fighting fantasy books, yeah. Yes, yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure it was him. And it was a phone line. So you would have, the goblins are coming from the north. Will you talk to them? Press 1. Will you kill them? Press 2. This kind of thing. And you would dial the number and it would do what it did. The problem being, I used to do this at work with my friend Trevor. And of course it was an 0898 number. And we would do this every lunchtime. And, oh man, we got called in at the end of the month. It was like a two and a half thousand pound phone bill or something i think it was whoa it was unbelievable did you press one pay it to say (laughs) you can stick your job mate and there was also another one what the worst thing was we stopped doing it and then trevor came in and said oh you know that fist thing they've done another one it's called gladiators of the roman empire and this one's even better because what you can do you can he could phone in dial in a particular code or whatever I could phone in as well and we could fight each other as, as Romans well I'm just going to take a wild guess here gladiators of the Roman Empire yeah was that acronymized to gore and if so what did fist stand for I think fist was something like it there, it definitely was an acronym F- fighting interactive simulating telephone something like that it was an acronym but looking back now, all I, my, my one memory is my boss obviously finding this phone bill coming in. These two blokes finding these 0898 numbers called Fist. What the, <laughs> hell is, what the hell is going on? No, it was it's wonderful. And it was very... I did look up on it. I think you could join a fan club or something and there were, you'd get these newsletters of more information. But effectively, that's what it was. It was a role-playing game, uh, but highly expensive. And I think... For obvious reasons, it didn't last because the the phone bills were horrendous. Well, there were all these incredibly expensive dial-up services in the 80s in particular. And somebody somewhere must have been making thousands out of them. I mean, there were things like there was Dial-A-Disc, there were the BT Bedtime Stories read by Bernard Cribbins as Busby. There were all those things you saw advertised in the back of the news of the world where it was, you know, free sex tips or the joke of the day. You could phone for a joke of the day. I mean, I was going to say who phoned them, but people must have done for the to be even the money to advertise them in the first place. Yeah, I guess. I remember Dial-A-Disc... Was it 160? Why would anyone, even back then, why would anyone want to phone that to hear? I don't know. Everybody wants to run the world by tears of fears and really poor crackly quality. I just don't, I don't understand There was it. no music around at the time, you know. So was the actual game worth the trouble it caused? It was fantastic. It was so interesting. But the typical, as all of these kind of role-playing things is, you'd get about... 
I think you had a code if you wanted to cut you know you'd last 20 minutes on this phone, highly expensive phone line and you get given a code so phone in again tomorrow to continue from here so you'd phone in again and then you'd press one and get killed by a load of goblins but it would then send you right back to the beginning of the game you couldn't even start from... You know what this is starting to sound like? Brian Butterfield's Butter Tendo from the Peter Serafinovich show. It was great fun and we were naive and we didn't really learn from it to this day. Will we ever learn? That's a bigger question. Okay, well, let's try a bit of interactivity now. Chris, you've got a phone in front of you. Are you going to press 1 to hear Revolution 9 or 2 to skip it? 1 every time. I didn't really expect anything else, to be honest. Chris, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, too. The Lark's Ascending, a complete guide to comedy on BBC Radio 3, featuring Chris Morris, Peter Cook, Sue Townsend, Rowan Atkinson, Peter Tinniswood, N.F. Simpson, Armando Yanucci, the National Theatre of Brent, Ivan Cutler, Leonard Brossiter, John Sessions, Kenneth Williams, Joe Orton, Dave Renwick, Andrew Marshall, the BBC Radio Link Workshop, the King Singers, the Beatles and more. More details, timworthington.org. <laughs>